Every job is basically a sales position. If I have a customer that I believe should make an investment in a new technology because it will help them, I need to understand how to show them the value that's there. You need to create that understanding of how this is really better for the long run. If you actually listen to what your customer wants and needs, and then they can go back and communicate and validate clear expectations, then you can be successful. And that applies to every career. And again, that's sort of ingrained in you when you're selling Cutco and working for Marketing. Even at NASA, 95% of all of our challenges that we have are communication. It's not really with technology. I hope that every person appreciates just how pervasive space has been to every person's life. It really is everywhere. I really believe when you send humans specifically out into space, they need technologies to efficiently support both the frailty of people and develop the tools for them to maintain high productivity. And so necessity becomes another invention. With the platform we get from space, it influences our future energy sources. Everything from clean water, clean air, to the medical procedures, all of these things are sort of pushed to the extreme. And all of those things apply back to Earth. The voice you just heard is John Dankinich, the head rocket scientist for NASA. Ever since he was a young boy, John knew he wanted to be a rocket scientist. A twist in his path led him to two summers with Cutco Vector, where he learned about selling and about developing others. Now, his mission centers around safe human spaceflight and efforts to get our species to Mars and beyond. What follows here is a truly enlightening conversation with a guest who is totally unique in the annals of this podcast. I know you'll enjoy getting to know this insightful and inspiring leader, John Dankinich. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I have a very cool guest today. His name is John Dankinich. And John sold Cutco shortly after high school. He became an assistant manager in his second summer, worked primarily with Mike Muriel. John graduated from Purdue University in 2001. He went to Purdue for grad school as well, graduated again in 2003 and got into being a rocket scientist. He is now the chief technologist for the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. We have got a lot of interesting things to talk about today. John, I'm really grateful you've taken the time to be with our audience and share your experiences and insights. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Dan. It's an honor to be here. 
Fantastic. Well, why don't you start by helping our audience get to know a little bit about you, a little bit about your personal background at first? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So um, as, as you mentioned, you know, for several years now, I've been the chief technologist at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, which is down in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, I recently became the in-space transportation capability lead for the agency. Uh, my career has always been centered around advanced propulsion systems, uh, from mission design and also some technology development. I'm married with two kids, uh, Jonah and Josie, uh, live in Alabama, and just uh, have been blessed with the life that I have. So uh, I don't know how far you want me to go back, uh, but I was born in East Chicago, Indiana, uh, but really grew up in Hammond. Uh, sometimes I, I even joke, uh, for every great city, there's a depressed region just downwind. You know, so as a kid, uh, I used to go with my dad to a big open, super fun site and launch rockets. But it's all the region, you know, the Calumet region of Northwest Indiana. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's where I went to, uh, to Gavit for high school. Uh, but my career path that I mapped out uh, really started much earlier. Uh, in the third grade, I believe, uh, I wrote my mom a letter on that, uh, that one-inch uh, ruled brown paper. And I, and I told her that I was going to be an aerospace engineer and specifically that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. That was my plan. And, and I stayed focused on that goal for you know the next nine years. My wrestling coach helped me train for the physical fitness test. I even took the ACT twice to get a 36. But I didn't want to risk anything. You know, it was an exciting time when I did receive my appointment to the academy and everything was set. It was a big relief, you know, you get when you finally earn something, you work so hard. And, uh, and I didn't have to stress out about the cost of college. I didn't even have to stress out about what I was going to wear for the next several years. I received this huge trophy that's still in my mom's basement. Free college, an opportunity to serve my country, and I was going to be an aerospace engineer like I wanted. But neither of my parents went to college. My father served in Vietnam, and then he worked in a steel mill until he died of cancer, which was before I graduated high school. My mom was a beautician doing hair, cleaning doctor's offices, the hair salon, and really anything she could do to make money. And so I'm very blessed to have parents that gave everything they had for me to be successful. And unfortunately, things fell apart briefly. It was literally the day before I was flying out to basic training, and I had my airplane ticket, my military boots, and it was actually going to be my first time on an airplane when the academy called me and said that I had a problem with my heart uh, from my medical exam. I had failed the EKG, and, uh, and I couldn't board my flight the next day. It had been already, at that time, over a month since I drove to Notre Dame for my exam, and so it was kind of a major shock. That phone call is actually um, still a vivid memory that I have 25 years later, even though you know, I think my mom took it a lot worse than I did. So for the, the start of the summer, you know, I needed to pivot and find a, find a new path you know, really for my life. And thankfully, it led me to, to where I am today you know, with an executive uh, leadership position at NASA, doing what I love. Wow. So your goals to be an aerospace engineer, to be a rocket scientist, it goes all the way back to third grade or even sooner? Absolutely. You know, I was first inspired when I watched the, you know, the Challenger accident. You know, I was so enamored uh, with, with what happened, the decisions that were made, uh, the technology behind it. And I wanted to figure out you know, what I could do to have a career for a, a safe human space flight. Wow. And so being in the Air Force was uh, your goal as well throughout uh, that entire time. And you're all set to go to the Air Force. And literally the day before you go to the Air Force, they call you and they say, hey, you can't come out. Yeah, it was a little surreal, you know, because I mean, I had everything you know ready to go. And uh, I had no plans afterwards, right? Because your life is then in control of the government, right? And so right. Uh, everything was set. And I, yeah, very last minute. Wow. 
And I guess, uh, at least from the uh, standpoint of Cutco here, a blessing in disguise was that that ended up leading you to sell Cutco, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a direct result of what happened uh, right after high school. It's interesting to me in that I wasn't really lost, right? I mean, I knew where I was and I knew where I wanted to be. I just needed to pick a new route to get there because college was now starting in a couple of months and I needed to apply to go to other places. And trust me, college applications are not something you want to start after graduation. Right. Uh, but because now, now it was too late for any type of financial aid. I was, I was pretty limited. You know, Luckily, I was able to plead my case with Purdue Calumet, which is in Northwest Indiana. They said they can enroll me in classes that weren't uh, filled to capacity yet. Uh, but again, I couldn't get any financial aid for my first year. And so now, um, look, I mean, Purdue is still a great value for college, especially with its reputation for engineering and, and aerospace engineering. I mean, it's the, as we were talking earlier, it's, it's both the cradle of astronauts and quarterbacks. I mean, it had Neil Armstrong and Drew Brees. Of course, uh, back then, college was very different in terms of cost. I remember it was $1,500 for 15 credit hours. And then I was going to live at home. So it was still um, you know, within the, the realm of possibility. I wanted to sign up for 20 hours my first semester and I needed money fast. And $2,000 to save in a couple of months was still a big ask for a teenager living in, in Hammond. And you know that's when I kept seeing those peculiar signs on the light post. Maybe back then it was something like college students, $13.25 an hour. And then there was a phone <laughs> number, right? It was like the mystery. What is this? You know, you have no idea what, what the job really is. You know, even when I called, it, it was something about sporting goods, right? And, uh, you know, the interview, the, the interview is nothing like I expected from the phone call. Uh, of course, uh, you know, that interview was the opportunity to sell Cutco. As you mentioned, that's when I met uh, Mike Muriel, who was the, the branch manager. But I also met Tanya, who, who I think was the assistant manager, who was only a couple years older than me. Uh, she was a student at Purdue Lafayette, and that's where I wanted to be. And so... Since that's what I wanted, I was sort of all in on, on selling knives that summer and joining the team. Nice. That is pretty cool. Hey, you mentioned Neil Armstrong. There's been this like legend in the Cutco business for many years that Neil Armstrong sold Cutco. It was supposedly after he had already gone to like, I think he went to the Korean War right away when he was like 18 or 19. And he, then he came back, then he went to Purdue. And it was while he was at Purdue to help pay his way through school in the 1950s somewhere. Can you corroborate this at all? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I cannot, right? Uh, I'm not really sure the early years. I've read some books and, and watched you know, some of the documentaries, but uh, I certainly don't know if he had a side hustle, but I'll say it wouldn't surprise me because of you know just uh, his personality mentality that he could take on anything and take on the world and, and be successful. And I think, you know, as you know, you know, selling knives is all about that personal uh, you know, initiative and getting out there. And so it, it definitely sounds like something that, that Neil would not only do, but, but succeed at uh, succeed, uh, accomplishing. Yeah, yeah. Well, what were some of your experiences that uh, really stand out from your time with the company? Yeah, so, you know, in hindsight, there's, there's probably several times I wish I could go back and pick myself a little for sure, uh, things I could have done better. You know, I have to say, I really enjoyed the sales part of the job. You know, I think like most people, I, I started off dreading the phone call to set the appointment. Uh, but once I had an appointment, I knew that sale or no sale, both the customer and I were going to have a good time because, you know, kind of like this, you know, I, I love telling stories and I love telling stories while I was selling knives. And so uh, my appointments uh, averaged over 90 minutes, which I think is longer than normal. But I know I also had a really high average order, something like $350 per sale. I also remember my, my sister being really supportive. She was one of my first customers who, who bought a galley set for me and, 
And she lived at home. She kept it in a box. She didn't really have the money, you know, for the purchase or the need at the time. But I really don't even know why she bought it. But I'll say today she has a Homemaker Plus 8. Uh, so that's great. In general, and, and I don't know if it's because you only get leads for, for, you know, the nice people. Maybe, you know, you send some kid, you know, out to meet your nicer friends, right? But, uh, you know, I think even without sales, over 95% of my appointments were with friendly people that wanted to see me succeed. And I walked away almost with a new friend, uh, you know, each appointment that I had. My second year, I was an assistant branch manager. And so I have lots of memories from that experience. So I moved to St. Louis and, and helped open up an, a new office in Bellevue, Illinois. Uh, that's the home of the giant ketchup bottle, which I was uh, everyone local wanted to show me. And, uh, you know, it was my, my first job where my success was really dependent on the success of those I served. You know, and it's a very different role, different mentality. You know, you're more of a mentor. Uh, I also remember a time when an older person came in for an interview and, and she sort of judged me, you know, as a, as a young teenager and, and commented that she didn't think I wore the shoes of a successful person. And that made me a little self-conscious for a little while. You know, I didn't have expensive clothes, a watch, or you know, obviously expensive shoes. You know, but I, w- I wasn't budgeting for Alan Edmonds at the time, right? I was budgeting for school. You know, I probably let that bother me a little more than I should, but, but some things you learn later in life. There's a lot of things that I still learn you know, every day. You know, what I guess what I'd say, the experience that stands out the most for, for the people that I got to know that second summer. You know, if you really want exposure to diversity, offer a high-paying job with no skills required and see who comes through the door. My experience taught me also that you really can't predict who will do well in a position that is almost entirely dependent on effort versus any other criteria. The first leads might be great if you're from an affluent family, but that they really didn't matter after the first week. You know, some people who you thought were going to follow the process and have great results would quit the first week. I think some people quit before they even told their parents that they accepted the job and received their kit, while others were really quiet. And you might have concerns with their communication skills, but they simply learned to follow the script and, and the script worked. And, uh, you know, I wish there was a way to sort of take that mentality, you know, the fear that's irrational, that to just have faith in the process and then you'll get results and your results you know, just require you to, to step through that process and make the effort. And I really wish I could instill that into people. And, you know, we see that frequently, right? The ability to instill into others as buy into a proven process is what makes great coaches and great leaders. And uh, that's also what makes them great managers uh, at Cutco. Yeah, for sure. Mike Muriel is just known as somebody who's great at instilling confidence into others. I mean, he himself is a very confident person. And I think his personal example on a lot of the things that he says helps instill that confidence in others. And it's one of the great traits, I think, of a lot of great leaders and something that we get a chance to practice Right. I, just like you, John, I was an assistant manager my second summer. And I, you know, I was 17 when I started the job. So I was 18 my second summer working as an assistant manager, interviewing people sometimes older than me. One time, somebody who babysat me when I was a kid came in for the interview. Right. <laughs> so that was really funny. And you know, I had a chance to practice as an 18-year-old investing myself into helping others to grow and develop. And there's just something so great about that as a young person that uh, was really a transformative experience for me during my early days with Cutco. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the highlights that, that I get to enjoy now in my, my current role. Yeah. What are the key lessons you feel like you've carried with you into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, every job is basically a sales position. I have customers just the same. If I have a customer that, that I believe should make an investment in a new technology because it will help them, you know, I need to understand how to show them the value that's there. 
you know, that's certainly a lesson from Cutco is that value is what matters. Uh, price is secondary. Now, obviously, it's still relevant, but it's all about the value and the performance you can get. Another related lesson is certainly that you have to really show the, um, the long-term potential of decisions to spend money. You, know, you can buy cheaper knives than Cutco, uh, but you need to replace them or you'll have a poor product, a more dangerous product. And sometimes that costs you more in the long run. And so it's the same, you know, so if now I, I want to sell a digital transformation investment, let's say for earth science or storm tracking data processing, we could be spending $300,000 per year to do it, you know, and do it slow and efficiently with greater errors, or we can make an investment in a million dollars for a machine learning software development and bring that cost down to 50000 per year. We get better accuracy and it pays for itself. Yet customers may not want to spend more upfront. You know, you need to create that understanding of how this is really better for the long run. So probably a more relatable analogy is my mom and her grill. She would buy these cheap grills for maybe $150. And I remember trying to convince her to buy a $500 Duquesne grill, which is like a, uh, the value version of a Weber. It's got better materials, better construction, and it cooks better, right? And 20 years later, I'm still using my, my Duquesne while my mom has replaced her grill so many times, <laughs> right? From, from the rust you get, you know, in the Midwest every few years. And so you know, I paid less in the long run. I had a better experience the whole time. And so, you know, that's certainly a lesson that, that you learned well from Cutco that, again, it applies really to every job. Another thing I'll say is, I, you know, I'm amazed with, with how many people, even professional engineers at NASA, are afraid to pick up the phone, you know, and just, just call somebody sometimes with a question uh, to find out what someone needs to ask for help or, or to collaborate on a project. It's some irrational fear. And I see it actually getting worse now with, with the texting and everybody else. So people don't like to talk to one another as much. Selling Cutco, you know, we were taught to think of the phone like an ATM machine, right? You punch in the numbers and money just comes out. So many times in my career, I've experienced the same thing. You know, it sounds silly, but you know, I would call a customer you know, that others were afraid to call. And they would tell me exactly what they need or validate requirements or expectations. And then because of that, I was able to give them exactly what they needed. You know, where others uh, simply couldn't because they were afraid to ask, you know, and they were guessing sometimes. Even one time um, I was running a NASA Shark Tank event in order to get people excited about submitting new technologies and new ideas. And so I, you know, I contacted Mark Cuban and I asked him if he would be a judge. And my leadership was like, you did what? <laughs> you know? And, and uh, but Mark said, yes, you know, and, and from the event, NASA received several new ideas that resulted in patents and, and technologies licensed to industry and solving challenges on Earth, right? All because you know I didn't hesitate to pick up the phone, right? And so that's something that is a lesson that you know is hard to learn, and Cutco sort of forces you to get over that fear. Fundamentally, I'd say that you know, you know even at NASA, ninety-five percent of all of our challenges that we have are, are communications. It's not really with technology, and so you know it's true that I'm blessed to work with brilliant engineers and scientists, even procurement officials, lawyers, and the housekeeping team. You know, it's all the same. If you actually listen to what your customer wants and needs, and then they can go back and, and communicate and validate clear expectations, uh, then you can be successful. And that applies really to, to every career. And again, you know, that's sort of ingrained in you when, you, when you're selling Cutco and working for uh, Vector Marketing. Wow. That was amazing, John. I mean, just a great testament to the value of what uh, we do here at Cutco in terms of helping young people prepare for greater success in life. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. That was really, really valuable. Tell us a little bit about your time at Purdue and uh, specifically how your the early part of your career uh, kind of evolved from that. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I love Purdue. You know, I believe black and gold. Uh, we were talking about sports. It's going to be a, a great season for us, uh, especially in basketball. You know, I already mentioned that, uh, you know, I always knew I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. So after I transferred down to Lafayette, uh, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't the best student. I probably played a little too much basketball. I also worked night shift in the dorm as a, as a door checker and continued doing that as a, as a dorm counselor. And, and I worked a lot alone, um, which was challenging for some assignments. Uh, as a counselor, I was really competitive, always having to win every floor contest. And, you know, I, I enjoyed getting to know so many people from different backgrounds, different goals, and so many students that were just needing help. And I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in the physics and aerospace engineering because I was interested in advanced propulsion. And then my master's in aerospace engineering. I also had the opportunity to to teach. So I taught physics for education majors while I was in grad school. And I and I really enjoyed that teaching. Again, kind of like that assistant manager job, you know, where you're trying to, um, you know, help others, you know, really understand and appreciate the nuances that you need to be successful. And so I knew that's something that I wanted to do in the future, you know, that that mentoring role or the teaching role. Overall, I'm just grateful that Purdue really prepared me, though, for the real world. And most students are like, Am I really going to use this ever in my life? You know, like I'm sure, uh, you know, most people when they graduate high school never use geometry again or some of the advanced algebra. But I was actually using partial differential equations, MATLAB simulations, even deriving equations from basic laws of physics. Uh, the first week on the job, I remember I needed to calculate adiabatic flame temperature, you know, not for homework, but for, for work. And, uh, you know, I was one of the few people that knew exactly, you know, how to do that fresh out of school. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that it really prepared me for the future. And it was, it was a great choice to end up at first. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, and so how did your career begin after you got out of Purdue? Yeah. So the first part was, was getting a career, trying to get a job. You know, even after I graduated, people think that, you know, oh, you're the chief technologist. It was probably easy. Everybody was throwing offers your way, right? But that's even with my master's degree from a prestigious university, I, I actually had a challenge finding a job. It wasn't the best time when I graduated, but I refused to move home because uh, somehow I thought it wouldn't keep me motivated to find a job and it's like accepting defeat. So I, I moved in with a, with a girlfriend and her friend in, in Indianapolis and I would uh, constantly apply for jobs and, and teach at the middle schools and high schools as both a, a daily and long-term substitute teacher. And, uh, and each day I would go through the internet scouring for, for jobs and I would tailor a cover page for each opportunity and then apply. Uh, the goal was no less than than 30 applications a day. And I, and I did this for months. And I almost thought, you know, my window might close, but then I actually ended up getting uh, two interviews the same week and then got offers from both places, you know, once I got the interviews. And so um, I took my first job at a small business that was providing engineering services to NASA. It was called Gray Research. It was uh, less than 100 people at the time. And, uh, you know, I felt really welcome to the team, uh, moved down to Alabama. And the owner, Ron, he was really as supportive as, as any employee could ever want. There, I, I started supporting the NASA InSpace Propulsion Technology Program office. Again, uh, while I was there, I also went to the labs and I asked if I could do some extra work, you know, in the evenings. And I was welcomed into the lab to do some design build tests of advanced electric propulsion engines, which was my dream job. So at that time, it was my, my side hustle. And, uh, you know, at the time, he was actually even run by, uh, by Tom Markusik, who, um, who left SpaceX and is now the CEO of Firefly. I will say that there's very little that's more satisfying than coming up with some new technology concept or reading a journal article and actually building it, testing it, um, or test, even using the new diagnostics and learning how it truly works, the sensitivity, design choices, fabrication challenges. You know, I, I learned early that engineers can design lots of things that can't be manufactured easily. 
And then uh, after doing that for a while, you know, I found that I actually wasn't very successful at selling thrusters. You know, it wasn't as easy as selling knives. <laughs> so what I did was I, got, I actually got more involved with systems analysis, you know, and then low thrust trajectory optimization, which is really for marketing my thrusters. So again, I, I harnessed my Cutco experience and I picked up the phone and I cold called, you know, an engineer at JPL, uh, Carl Sauer, and I asked him to teach me you know, how to do trajectory optimization for these electric propulsion engines. And he did it without hesitating. You know, he showed me how to do everything. And you see, I was characterizing my thrusters based on their characteristics, which, you know, doesn't really matter to those who want to buy the thrusters. You know, a person buying a knife doesn't really care if it's high carbon, right? They care if it stays sharp for a long time. And that's what trajectory optimization did for me. So instead of telling a planetary scientist, my thruster has a specific impulse of 4,000 seconds, which is like its fuel efficiency. Instead, I could tell a scientist, look, my thruster can get your science instrument to your target a year faster and with a lower cost base path. So trajectory optimization allowed me to communicate the value of the technology to the decision maker. And, and that's when I started to have real success. From there, I, I moved to Cleveland to support NASA Glenn, who works on advanced propulsion systems that also wanted to be able to sell some of their technologies. Uh, I even started my own small business because you know, outside of JPL, there are very few people who are doing uh, low thrust optimization. And this was before computers and new algorithms made the problems relatively easy. So um, business was good at the time. And then uh, NASA Marshall offered me an opportunity for a government position to help pursue technology investments directly for NASA and sort of guide the agency a little bit more. And again, uh, you know, the model of understanding your customers' needs, turning that into hardware solutions and new projects was, was successful for me. And, and that's when I transitioned to be the chief technologist at Marshall. So that, that allows me to help foster this culture of innovation, uh, mentor talented engineers, how to successfully identify pain points to the, the customers, and then come up with innovative solutions and get the funding to develop those technologies, whether that's new thrusters, new battery technologies, materials, manufacturing techniques, or even you know, advanced life support systems for, for like the space station. Most recently, I started teaching an evening class through Arizona State University. It's called the uh, L Space Academy. Uh, which is a partnership with NASA that teaches skills relevant to future STEM workforce. And so uh, I focus on teaching, how, again, how to identify those technology needs and how to write proposals, right? how to communicate you know, the value to, to the customers. And I absolutely love it. You know, I enjoy working with the class. The students are just amazing. And it's a, it's a real family atmosphere where you know, we all want to help each other succeed. This might surprise you, but you know, so many people you know that are outstanding in in science and technology and math. You know, those students they really need a support system to help build that confidence. Kind of like that Mike Muriel, right? You need that somebody sitting on your shoulder saying you can do this, right? Which is really interesting because you know the class is mostly students that are busting their butts, they're working late hours on something that isn't even required, and yet they seem to question themselves, right? They question, you know, do I really belong here? And they seem surprised when they're successful. And it started with just a couple dozen students. And now you know, I'm fortunate to have hundreds of students every semester. And it's, uh, it's energizing for me. And as a virtual class, I get to meet so many students from Puerto Rico to Hawaii and Alaska, everywhere in between, it's hundreds of colleges and universities. And it's yielded so many new innovations for NASA. And it's, again, it's really energizing for, for what I do every day. Wow. That was cool to hear uh, how your career has progressed and you started out as a substitute teacher looking for work in the aerospace engineering field. And then, you know, had, uh, had a couple breakthroughs that led you to where you are now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate. Again, I, you know, I had you know, friends and family to support me along the way and just allow me to keep 
try and, you know, before uh, I finally broke through. Yeah. So now you're the head rocket scientist for all of NASA. What, uh, what does this mean you're responsible for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you make my job sound uh, maybe a little cooler than it probably is. In terms of my responsibilities, you know, as the, as the chief technologist at Marshall, you know, I serve about 5,000 people, which includes uh, both civil servants and the contractor team. Uh, as the capability lead, it's a portfolio that serves about 2,000 people across most of the NASA centers. And it's about a $2 billion portfolio and investment. I provide that strategic guidance on the investments, and I also coordinate with the other agencies like the Air Force and the Space Force, industry and academia, to make sure that our work is, uh, is aligned and we're all um, you know, sort of uh, swimming in the same direction to achieve our common goals. And so what are some of the primary goals that you're focused on in the near term? Yeah, so our near-term goals have been focusing on in-space transportation for, for Mars. You know, that's, that's really our, our long tentpole in order to, uh, to get our way to Mars. And so on the NASA side, you know, we've been focusing a lot on uh, nuclear propulsion solutions. So that's nuclear thermal, but also nuclear electric propulsion. Uh, and also some of the uh, support systems that you might need for different solutions, such as uh, cryogenic fluid management. So if Starship, for example, uses cryogenic propellants with liquid methane, liquid oxygen. And then we have uh, solutions um, like Blue Origin uses liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. And all those require you know, the valves and the actuators and, and you don't want to lose too much of your cryogenic commodities during boil off. And so managing those fluids is a real challenge for us. And so we're developing all the fundamental technologies we need to enable that. So what's the outlook for being able to land on Mars? Yeah, so I mean, everything is, seems to be uh, heading in a positive direction. So I'm certainly excited for what's coming. Of course, uh, you know, the moon is coming up first. Uh, so we'll be getting there. Is there plans to go back to the moon in the next couple of years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd say that, you know, since the dates are much closer, the plans for returning the moon are, are much higher fidelity. Before the Trump administration, I believe we were hoping to, to return to the moon by 2028. During that administration, there were significant initiatives to pull that date forward. Originally targeting 2024 to land the first woman and another astronaut on the South Pole of the moon. So we should be seeing the Space Launch System and Orion launching in the spring of 22. And then the human landing system, uh, that contract was awarded to SpaceX, and it, it's trending towards a 25 landing, which is the first woman, the first person of color on the South Pole of the Moon. The goal is to, to lay the infrastructure for sustainable presence, and, uh, and that includes at least uh, 10 moon landings in the near future. So, you know, um, I'll say a, a large focus of these lunar activities, though, is testing the technologies that are going to be used for missions to Mars. The current NASA plan does have the crew on the surface of Mars in the late 2030s, and SpaceX, you know, they have their own plans uh, to send people to Mars even sooner. And how will such space travel change lives for normal people? Yeah, so I can say this is probably for multiple series of podcasts uh, to answer that question. And I think they exist, actually. But I hope that every person appreciates just how pervasive space has been to every person's life. Some of those are, are military space investments, such as GPS that we use every day when we're you know, mapping our direction to go somewhere, tracking where our phone might be. Many are NASA, such as the cameras in our phones and in our pockets. Um, you know, those were developed as a lightweight camera for planetary science. Certainly, Earth science has a major influence in our, in our lives. Um, with the platform we get from space, you know, it influences our future energy sources when we need to seek shelter from hurricanes, uh, you know, that we forecast, uh, predicting crop yields, disaster relief, you know, even improvements to municipal water supplies. And so it really is everywhere. You know, I really believe when, when you send humans specifically out into space, 
they need technologies to efficiently support both the frailty of people and develop the tools for them to maintain high productivity. And you know, so necessity becomes their mother of invention. This could include telerobotics for remote medical procedures, long-term storage of medication, water recovery, recycling, even mental health monitoring and intervention due to isolation is something that you know, would have and, and will be a benefit to so many people that went into isolation during COVID, for example. You know, the, the list is really endless. It's interesting to think about what you just said, that uh, many sort of medical innovations that are needed here on Earth can be developed during our time in space. As you said, necessity is the mother of invention. When people are out there, it's a difficult environment to keep somebody alive in, right? And so it does yield a lot of technologies and benefits that could be applied here. Absolutely. I mean, everything from clean water, clean air, the medical procedures, all of these things, you know, are, you know, sort of pushed to the extreme when we try to get these closed systems that are sustainable for long durations. And all of those things apply back to Earth. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned SpaceX, John. What is the differences between NASA and a private sector enterprise like SpaceX? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I want to say is that we're partners, we're not competitors. NASA has always worked with industry suppliers to help NASA accomplish its goals. The best case scenario for us is that we don't need to develop it, that it exists and we could just buy it from someone else. You know, the space shuttle may have been designed by NASA, but it was built by a team from ATK, Lockheed Martin, and Boeing Rockwell. You know, we're certainly using a different procurement process now, where instead of paying for a shuttle for a NASA design, we're paying for SpaceX for that service of sending astronauts to the space station, and more recently to develop a human lander. You know, so NASA is still involved in the certification of the, the commercial crew system. Uh, you know, we help sort of mentor the SpaceX and bring them along. Um, but they have tremendous freedom in their design choices. Within NASA, I would say there are pockets of NASA that are just like SpaceX, but, but there's also investments that are very different. And a lot of it is really based on our tolerance of failure. There are investments in NASA that really function under that model of failure is not an option. But th- those systems sometimes have longer development cycles and significant traceability to heritage solutions, you know, proving that we haven't changed much since the last time. And we want to understand the fundamentals regarding how each material behaves under the different environments. And when there are changes from previous experience in operations or environments, we, we study it a lot, often from first principles and attempt to characterize that risk. But there's other programs, you know, especially ones with limited heritage, where the goal is to fail fast and fail smart, um, and to learn from each failure and iterate quickly. You know, these are sometimes not as visible at NASA as they may be with SpaceX with things like the Starship. You know, they had an impressive number of iterations due to failures, but, but they learned at a fast pace. And this is, this is wonderful. Sometimes at NASA, you know, there may be a concern, whether it's real or perceived, that if NASA has a failure, it's not a learning experience on the right path, but rather it's a true failure. And we have to stop and, and answer to Congress about how and why we failed, perform detailed failure analysis for months. and and answer questions to the American taxpayer about why they paid for a failure before we can restart the program and apply lessons learned. And so, you know, that, that environment in communicating expectations is, is very different. But at the same time, I'm excited to see what, what SpaceX has been able to do. I mean, anybody who watched, you know, the flyback boosters landing, you know, I mean, it's just a you know, wonderful sight to see if you love rocket propulsion. It's just so amazing. At the same time, you know, the first time, you know, they, they landed, one on the barge, right, immediately cut the feed and we didn't see what happened, right, because it had exploded when it landed. As a government provider, you know, we certainly can't cut the feed and let people not see the failure sometimes or cover things up. But, you know, it's an exciting time overall 
to see what we're doing. And I think this partnership has definitely yielded tremendous dividends, right? We have an American company launching you know, astronauts from American soil, and they're doing it you know, in a much more affordable fashion. And that frees up resources to allow us to do the more challenging activities. That's cool to hear that uh, you know, NASA and SpaceX are viewed as partners, not competitors, that there's a lot of collaboration that happens. And, and uh, I like what you said about the goal is to fail fast and fail smart as you're evolving in technology. And it, it seems like there's a balance between having all the answers and being the expert, but also being willing to learn and eager to learn and eager to develop all the time. One of my avid listeners, John, suggested that I ask you about the balance between being a beginner, keeping yourself in what she called beginnership, and also being an expert in your field and having to feel like you've got to stay on top. How do you balance those elements and how you're trying to continue learning and developing? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, I'll say in some ways it's sort of forced upon you in that so much is new. The position of a chief technologist is very humbling, certainly has been for me, you know, because I had to accept that I cannot know everything for every technology, right? It's just not possible. It's even more challenging today than 10 years ago because of both the pace of innovation and the number of organizations involved in space entrepreneurship. So, uh, you know, thankfully, I have a great team for reach back on nearly any discipline. As the capability lead, I can focus more effort on for greater depth on fewer technologies, even though the fundamental principles are the same. The manufacturing process and materials are still frequently changing on me. The tools that we have for analysis and evaluations are also continuously evolving. And so, you know, I'm always in the lab with the engineers working, sometimes getting a little time I get to play myself. I try to read the journal articles and stay up to date. I get to work with industry partners. I study the tech trends. And, and I also get invited uh, to serve on hundreds of review boards, uh, portfolio assessments inside and outside of NASA, and even the competitions that allows me to have that opportunity to see the latest technologies and, and what's going on throughout the community. And that, that certainly helps me try to stay on top of what's going on. That sounds great. It definitely, I feel like that has to be a key part of the kind of job that you have because things are changing so fast all the time and, and always evolving. And so you have to be constantly evolving at the same rate or greater rate as, uh, as the technologies. So a lot of people wanted me to ask you about life outside of Earth. John, what's your view on the, the existence of intelligent life outside of our Earth here? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> so I'll say the rational side of me, you know, I, I look at what's called the Drake equation. So that's the equation that states that there's a, there's a certain rate for star formation. A fraction of those stars will have planets and a fraction of those planets will develop life. And a fraction of, of that life will develop into intelligent life. And then we recognize that that intelligent life will only have a limited amount of time to communicate with us before the civilization will collapse. So during my life, I have seen us start to bound those coefficients. The Kepler mission certainly helped us understand that planets around stars are very common. NASA just announced the astrophysics priority, which has developed the uh, LUVOR telescope, uh, which can investigate potentially habitable planets. And so we're going to get those coefficients of, of which those planets support life. So, you know, I am almost certain that life exists in the universe. What I don't know is if that life is intelligent life that will become capable of space travel or even space communication. The Earth has been around for four and a half billion years, and yet humans have only been around for a very small fraction of that time. There are multiple statistical anomalies that are believed to have occurred 
with well-timed ice ages and volcanic eruptions that have resulted in our larger brain formation, the ability to cooperate. And, and then we began writing only about 5,000 years ago. And so modern intelligent life might be extremely rare. It could even be unique. The Drake equation in history also, though, tells me that we should take action to become an interplanetary species so that we increase the time we have as a thriving civilization to communicate to others and also to protect our species. Yeah. I mean, I, I've obviously I have limited knowledge, but it just seems like with the billions and billions of stars that are out there that just like you said, some portion of them can support life. Some portion of those will evolve life. Some portion of those will evolve intelligent life. And so it just seems like there has to be other intelligent life out there. The difficulty, as you stated, is that then you have to be able to learn how to communicate outside of your own solar system, your own planet. You have to be, be able to learn to travel outside of it eventually. And that's something that we're barely able to do in a limited way, right? And so the likelihood of other intelligent species being able to communicate with us or travel here might be, it might be zero or might be very, very low. But the idea that there's something out there to certainly uh, seems like it would be a, a very high likelihood of being true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, this is a fun, you know, fireside philosophical chat, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting when I talk to other scientists and they say, well, statistics tell you that there's lots, but at the same time, look at the odds of what, what did happen. You know, so, you know, the Earth is a planet around the sun, so there's a percentage of those, and it's in this, what we call the Goldilocks zone, right, where it's not too right. close, so it's not too hot. It was bombarded by comets at the right time in order to provide all this water that we have on the planet. It had a collision with an object, you know, the size of Mars, which created the moon and the tilt, which led the seasons. And the seasons helped create life in order to have them leave the oceans, right, and go on the land. And then there was, you know, a well-timed, like a volcanic eruption that forced the primates to leave the trees and start walking, you know. And so again, when you think about all the statistical things that had to occur, it's hard to know just how unlikely is it that this would all happen again somewhere else. Yeah. Yep. It definitely a interesting philosophical, philosophical discussion. You mentioned humans becoming interplanetary as a species. What would be a chain of events that could make that a realistic possibility in the future? Yeah. So you know, this is probably the, the question that People have the most fun posing to Elon Musk, right? Who has you know, single-handedly has the resources to, and in some ways already has catalyzed our path to becoming a planetary species. So, you know, wh whether you watch the TV show The Expanse or just follow SpaceX, you know, you quickly realize that the key to sustain is sustainable transportation. And so, it's exciting time for me uh, because that's you know, the focus of my world, right? I don't know yet the the marginal cost of launching starships or the efficacy of hydrogen-based propulsion systems for things such as nuclear thermal propulsion. We have the, the long-term prospects appear really good for in-situ fuel production on the moon, and especially for methane on Mars. And so first is, is a viable, and that's really a cost-viable propulsion solution. But again, you know that could be my bias because that's the world I see. Next, we really need to understand the human risk of the long-duration exposure to deep space radiation. You know, we have humans that have been working now continuously in space for more than 20 years on the International Space Station, but that's protected by the Earth's magnetic field. And so we may require radiation mitigation technologies, or hopefully we can, we can rely largely on just intelligent design, such as 
you know, storing our water strategically located or, or when we get there, piling up regolith to provide some radiation protection. We're definitely going to need reliable power production, uh, which I believe is relatively trivial with, uh, with nuclear fission reactors. But if we have ample power, uh, then I believe we will have reliable sources of oxygen pulled from the atmosphere of Mars. It was recently demonstrated with MOXIE on the Mars Perseverance rover, but we need to scale that up significantly from where it is now as a proof of concept. Another exciting area, especially one we work on a lot here at Marshall, is we're going to need you know, in-space and on-surface manufacturing, you know, eventually from local material feedstock. So you know, think about the 3D printers for parts that break and the tools that we need. You know, and this also aligns with surface excavation and construction. So those technologies are absolutely critical for, for sustainable supply chains. Then probably will come food production capabilities become increasingly independent from the Earth. I also imagine that we're going to become highly dependent on autonomous systems, especially, you know, smart sensors and equipment and environmental monitoring with machine learning to predict potential near-term failures of systems for that proactive maintenance and repair. I mean, you don't want your life support system to fail uh, when, you know, just before you decide to fix it, right? <laughs> you want to start working on it before the life support fails, otherwise the clock is ticking. And so I think you know, there's quite a bit. Uh, certainly... Um, what I'm hoping for is, is some event that's going to be a discovery or some new production capabilities, such as mining asteroids, that offers an economic incentive for a private investment, which will then lead to an economically sustainable civilization beyond Earth. So space exploration is no longer limited to only large nation states, but as we've seen, private investors and even individuals with their own priorities and, and interests in, in moving us beyond the Earth. You said we need economic incentives for for this to occur, for all of this to occur, what would be a, a couple examples of that? Yeah, so you know, I'm not sure what we'll discover on Mars, but I, I think there's lots of literature out there with the resources that are available in the asteroids. And so the asteroids can include raw materials such as you know nickel and platinum and things like that. But at the same time, you know, near term, it's going to be water is going to be the most important commodity because it can be broken down for space propulsion or it can be broken down for oxygen, the things that we need to sustain those environments. And so I think there will be commodities that will start to gain value. And so we have to figure out when that threshold you know, crossover occurs where private investment will, will try to capitalize on, on providing those commodities and obtaining those resources. And you know, when they do, you know, then we start to see that real you know, expansion and, and push out because it's no longer contingent on election cycles or anything else in order to maintain progress and keep growing you know, that civilization once it's put there on the surface of Mars. Yeah. And what do you feel would be the most realistic, the most optimistic timeline for all this? Is this something we might see in our lifetimes? So it's funny you say that. You know, I'm always trying to figure out what gets me excited about the future, right? In general terms, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, humans on Mars have always been 20 years away. But for the first time, I will say, I honestly believe that, that we will have humans on Mars in less than 20 years. And to do so, we're going to have unprecedented low-cost access to space. And that's what gets me excited, because simply that access opportunity is what enables acceleration with our innovation. You know, we're starting to see that now with all the new startups, the space startups, and it's only getting better. The more people that fly to space and do more things with their space flights, it attracts even more people to do more activities in low Earth orbit and so on. And it reflects the, the growing market that, that NASA hoped to accomplish when we started doing the commercial crew program. Now, you know, don't be fooled, right? The space startups aren't doing it because it's cool or the hobby of the wealthy, right? It's, they're doing it because they believe it's going to be a benefit to humanity and specifically one that people are willing to pay for to receive that benefit, you know, whether that's cheaper internet 
cell phone communications, uh, space-based solar power, new materials, new medications that can only be produced in microgravity, better extreme uh, weather tracking preparedness, agriculture, land management, right, and so on. And so the more space becomes accessible, the larger the benefits will be for all humanity. And so it's an exciting time for in-space transportation and an exciting time for space exploration overall. Wow. I mean, that was really enlightening just to hear some of the things that you shared that could be some of the evolutions that uh, can occur because of space travel. And uh, it really has given me a whole new perspective on what you do and on, uh, you know, the the whole role of NASA and, and what we're trying to develop and create. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Is there anything else you wish people knew about NASA that you'd want to share? In the near term, I, I certainly always like to give plugs for things that are happening, uh, which is, uh, you know, James Webb Space Telescope, right? That's been, you know, uh, we've been waiting a long time for that. It's going to be the next great observatory, vastly superior to Hubble. It's essentially, it's a, a time machine, right? It can look back billions of years to the early universe. And uh, that's been shipped. That's going to be launching, you know, in a month. NASA completed the stacking of the Artemis One system. And so in a few months, the, the Space Launch System and Orion is going to be launching a follow Artemis Two with crew. And that's going to go around the moon and then Artemis Three landing on the moon. And all this is, is paving the way for a long-term lunar presence that's going to serve as a stepping stone on the way to Mars. And so we like to call it, you know, the Artemis generation, like the Apollo generation. And I think what I want, you know, as many people as possible to appreciate, especially, you know, the, the younger kids, is this is an exciting place to be. And the science, technology has major contributions to society. And we need more scientists and engineers to get engaged overall in all industries, but especially aerospace industry. And there's great careers here for everybody. Everybody's welcome. It's a very inclusive environment. And I'm hoping Artemis is going to inspire more people to address the, you know, the big gap we're going to have in our, in our needs. Yeah. Wow. Cool stuff. Really, really uh, interesting things that you've been sharing here, John. I really appreciate hearing all of your insights and all of your examples. It's, uh, it's been really a, a fun conversation. I've enjoyed this a lot. I'd like to uh, just uh, give you a chance to wrap this up and just share anything else that you feel like you're excited about, whether it's something related to your job that uh, we haven't quite covered yet or anything, uh, anything personally that, uh, that you're excited about in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think I've expressed, honestly, I'm just, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I have, career I've gotten you know, from pursuing you know, a STEM career. I'm excited that every semester, again, I get hundreds of new students that are, that are excited to sort of continue some of the work that I've been doing. I'm excited to see the products that are coming that are going to you know, influence and benefit you know, the, the lives of everybody. Every year, NASA puts out this, this book. It's called uh, you know, Spinoff, and, uh, and it talks about some of the technologies that, that have been provided that you know, significantly benefit everybody. And it's, it's funny, it could be everything from odor eaters, which is a problem on space station, but it's a problem for people on Earth. It's uh, my father-in-law is a farmer and he's telling me how, how times have changed so much where he can use GPS data to know exactly where to apply fertilizer to get maximum yields and save money. And, and all of these things are going to be necessary as, as, the, as we move forward and the population across the planet grows and we look about more sustainable approaches to agriculture and everything that we do. So I'm truly blessed to work for NASA. I appreciate you having me here on the on the podcast to share some of the work that we do because you know it gets me excited. You know, I'm probably like you. Uh, I'm blessed to you know wake up excited to go to work every day, and not a lot of people can do that. And so I'm um, you know I just love to to share exactly what we're doing because believing in the mission 
is what makes you want to keep doing that mission for long term. Yeah. Well, it seems like you have an awesome mission in your life and uh, that's really great. You've worked hard to be able to get there. Congratulations on all of your success. And it's, it's really cool to hear how what you're doing is changing lives. It certainly fits in perfectly with the theme of this podcast. And it's been, as I said, really an enlightening conversation. I've been very grateful to have you as a guest here today on the podcast. John, thanks a lot. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. All right, everyone. That was John Dankinich. Wow, what a unique guest this was and truly unique episode in the annals of this podcast. I thought it was really cool how... John knew what he wanted to do when he was in third grade or even earlier than third grade and then has fulfilled that in his life. I mean, how many of us can say that uh, we're doing what we knew we wanted to be doing when we were in third grade? It just seems like John's entire life has been really driven by this mission and he's living that today, which is really cool. I found it interesting how necessity is what drove him into selling Cutco. Of course, he was planning on heading off to the Air Force, and then that wasn't able to happen, and he had to be able to pay for school. And what he learned is that sales is relevant in all of life. He said every job is a sales position, and he described so many great examples of how demonstrating value is important, the long-term potential of decisions that are made, things like picking up the phone. He said that many of NASA's challenges are challenges of communication, and So all of the skills that one develops throughout the Cutco experience can be so relevant in whatever it is that they do. That's something that we all know and believe, but it was really cool to hear it from somebody who is in such a unique field as rocket science. To me, what was so enlightening about this conversation was how pervasive the work that John and people like him are doing has become in our lives. All of the things that we benefit from because of space travel. And that was really an interesting part of the conversation. And it was inspiring to hear how the mission is being moved forward and what are the things that are next and the next moon landing, having a woman and a person of color on the moon that will help inspire legions of others with what they could be a part of in the future, going to Mars within 20 years as he stated. So many neat things that were shared here in this conversation. I hope you really enjoyed this one. I hope you'll share it with other people in your network. Appreciate your support of the podcast, everyone. And I hope you got great value out of this conversation with John Dankinich. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 